CNN. Radio. This is CNN Profiles, where we get to know people whose experience and insights can impact our understanding of the world. I'm your host, Michael Schulder, and for this profile, you must imagine for a moment that we are in the year 1940, because at this time, we are indeed pleased to have with us in our studios. Mr. John F. Kennedy, son of Ambassador and Mrs. Joseph P. Kennedy, who is in our city visiting Dr. and Mrs. Paul O'Leary. Mr. Kennedy is the author of the recently published book, Why England Slept. This young man from Boston has a clear-headed, realistic, unhysterical message for his countrymen and for his elders. And with that, we want you two of the radio audience to meet Mr. John F. Kennedy who is known to his friends as Jack Kennedy. But first, before we get into questions about this much-discussed book, I'd like to ask a few questions about how our guest has spent some of his 23 years. Tell me, Mr. Kennedy, where did you go to school? Well, I attended Harvard. I just finished there this June. And what are you studying at the present time? Well, I studied international relations there, and I plan to go on to law school the next three years and study law at Yale University. And may I ask, what are your plans for the future? Well, I don't know exactly yet. I'd, I'm interested more or less in working sometime in my life for the government, but I haven't really decided as yet. You've just been listening to a 23-year-old John F. Kennedy, and the tapes are in a CD in a new book called Listening in the Secret White House Recordings of John F. Kennedy, selected and introduced by our guest today, Ted Widmer. Ted, uh, thank you for joining us on CNN Profiles. My pleasure, Michael. Uh, 23-year-old John F. Kennedy uh, just graduated from Harvard, had written a book, uh, Why England Slept. Tell me a little bit about where these tapes come from, how many of them there were, and why you were chosen to select them. Well, the tapes exist at the John F. Kennedy Library in, in Boston, one of the many presidential libraries. And like li- most libraries, it has books, but it also has a vast collection of televised and recorded uh, pieces of information. And I was asked by the library about a year ago to go through the presidential tape recordings. President Kennedy designed a taping system in 1962 that lasted all the way to the end of his presidency, November 1963. And there was a strong interest in getting some of those selections out to the public. But in doing my research and talking to the librarians and archivists in Boston, I realized there's really quite a lot before he became president. And this was the earliest tape I could find, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. I'm glad you found it, because it shows him in a situation a lot like me today, uh, talking about a book that has just come out. And he was pretty far from Boston. He was in Rochester, Minnesota, and you wonder if people could even understand his accent out there. But uh, he, he acquitted himself well, and then throughout the 1950s, as a, a senator, he, he spoke often into tape recording uh, devices, including a dictaphone. And so there's a surprisingly uh, rich trove of recorded information relating to John F. Kennedy. And at this young point in his life, he, he talks about some interest in playing some role in government. And Well, uh, I love that, yeah. I love that quote. And then we follow it in the book with a, um, a, a campaign jingle from 1952 when he's running for Senate. So he obviously has an extremely strong interest. When we vote this November, let's all remember, let's vote for Kennedy. Make him your selection in the Senate election, he'll do more for 
was a young man, and like so many young men, he, he didn't quite know where, where he was headed, and World War II had broken out in Europe and would soon break out uh, in, in a year later, uh, would involve the United States. So he had a lot on his mind, and uh, it, it's normal that he didn't quite know yet, but um, he, he certainly did work for the government. He certainly did, and, and about 20 years later, uh, you have a wonderful recording in this book. He was at dinner uh, with uh, Ben Bradley, who at the time was, uh, was he at that time uh, editor of the Washington Post? No, he was bureau chief of Newsweek, which is owned by the Post Company, but um, he wasn't yet the famous Ben Bradley, the uh, editor-in-chief of the Post we, we know from the Watergate crisis. He was just a young man who'd come up with Kennedy. They'd gone to Harvard, both fought in the Pacific together, were good friends in the 1950s, and were just having a dinner party. And at the party, uh, another journalist named James Cannon came and brought a big tape recorder, reel-to-reel tape recorder, and just put it on the table. And they started talking about why John F. Kennedy wanted to become president. It's absolutely riveting personal moment where he talks for about an hour with uh, close friends and with his wife there about how hard it's going to be, some of his own liabilities, why he thinks he isn't a natural politician, which came as a surprise to me, and then other ways in which he feels like he is one. And you know what? We're going to take a little bit of a listen to that to that dinner party right now. It changes. I don't know what makes some politicians succeed and others fail. It's a combination of time and, and their own quality. And, and, and luck. And luck. Yeah. And just an extra. I mean, the margin's awfully small in between, you know, those who succeed and those who Like it is in life. No, but I think I, personally, am the antithesis of the politician as I saw my grandfather was the antithesis, who was the politician. I mean, every reason, and I say, that he was ideal. What he loved to do was what politicians are expected to do. And I just think that today... Don't you? No, I don't. I don't enjoy... I'd rather read a book in a plane than talk to the fellow next to me. And my grandfather wanted to talk to him. Everybody else. So, so here we are in, I think, January 1960, January 1960, 10 months before this, 11 months before this man is going to be elected president, and he's basically telling his friends he's not a natural politician. He prefers to do things that are not political. It's amazing to listen to that. It's amazing. It's, it's highly personal. We almost never hear politicians confess weaknesses, and he, he is. And one innately sense that it's true, that there was something different from John F. Kennedy. He was not a big, back-slapping politician who loved to go up and give two-hour speeches. That was the way politics was conducted a generation earlier. He was a tightly controlled, uh, telegenic person, uh, highly concerned with getting his message out, but to do so in a way that was efficient. I think he loved efficiency. He could get more done with a short, televised message than a long speech, and he um, had a sense that Everything was changing, information, industry, the way politics was organized, all of it was changing. And even if he confessed that vulnerability, which I think was true, he also knew that he had great strengths in the new political world that he was entering into. And, you know, I I was planning to do this more chronologically, but you mentioned uh, how rare it is to hear a politician express self-doubts or mistakes. Uh, And so I want to jump to November 4th, 1963, right after the coup in Saigon, and he dictates 
a message to himself on the tape recorder where once again sort of blames himself for making a certain mistake. And I just want to play that. If you can ju- just give us the context at the time, what was happening? Well, it's an extraordinary moment for a lot of reasons. Uh, over the weekend, a bloody coup had killed the president of South Vietnam, uh, President Diem, who was, if not a friend, a, an acquaintance, someone, a colleague of President Kennedy's. He'd known him for a long time. And uh, his brother, uh, President Diem's brother, and the coup had been uh, very violent. They were they were shot, and their bodies disposed of. And it was disturbing to him for many reasons. And obviously, the violence, but also it was a, a sign that Vietnam policy was not going well. And I think he was troubled by many aspects of of the policy that um, he felt that his government wasn't acting with um, one voice. That different parts of the government were very in favor of the coup, and other parts were against it. And that the coup had gone forward with um, tacit approval of the United States government, which hadn't been really vetted to his satisfaction. So I think he's you know, somewhat mad at himself. It was a Vietnamese coup, I should point out. I mean, it was conducted by Vietnamese generals, but with tacit support from the United States. And he was frustrated. I think it was reminiscent to him of the Bay of Pigs, his first uh, big foreign policy episode as president, which was a, a disaster in April 1961, when he got a lot of faulty advice from the CIA and from his military advisors and allowed a previously planned operation to go forward. And it was beginning to feel quite familiar again in, in November 1963 that Vietnam was, was bad and getting worse. And I, I think he, he felt he needed to take control of the situation. And so let's listen to what he uh, said into the microphone of his own tape recorder at that time. I uh, feel that uh, we must bear good deal of responsibility for it, beginning with our cable of early August in which we suggested the coup, period in my judgment that wire was badly drafted, comment should never have been sent on a Saturday, I uh, should not have given my consent to it without a roundtable conference in which McNamara and Taylor could have presented their views, while we did redress that balance in later wires, it that first wire encouraged Lodge along a course to which he was, in any case, inclined. Hawkins continued to oppose the coup on the ground that the military effort was doing well. There was a sharp split between Saigon and the rest of the country. So what struck me there is the words, I should not have given my consent to that wire that supported the coup. I should have had a roundtable discussion first. You studied a lot of presidential history. Are there presidents on tape admitting to decisions that they regretted? I can't think of another one. Uh, It's a pretty unique moment. I mean, he's saying that into a tape recorder that he controls, so it wasn't for public release, obviously, but it's, it's still significant. It's the statement of an intelligent man and a student of history, which he was, that, um, he made an error and it's not quite the same thing as saying, uh, caused it to happen, that would be a different kind of statement, but it's saying that he felt his government, difficult to control uh, often, had proceeded uh, in, in the wrong way, and that they had not had a full vetting of all of the issues, which were extremely complicated issues, but he wanted, by saying he wanted McNamara in there, that's a way of saying he wanted a much more critical voice, a senior voice, to examine the plan going forward, and 
probably to modify it and even to, um, if not end it, then delay it until it was fully agreed upon, which it was not. And now, and now here is really a surprise and one of the most magical moments in all the tapes. And I are you a father? I am. Yes, I am. Uh, how many children do you have? Uh, one son who's 17. A 17-year-old son. I, I have three children who are younger than that. And and, and this really, as, as a father, I'm sure, as any parent, this blew me away because here he is talking about the mistake he made on one of the most serious matters in the world. And then a voice comes into the Oval Office. Let's listen to it. It's the voice of his son, who was how old at the time? Two, one or two. And, must be two because he's speaking. And the son just comes into the office as the president is dictating, and, I, and we have to let the audience listen to how the president just changes gears from president to father. Applying additional pressures to examine new in order to move them. Hello. Why do the leaves fall? Why does the snow come on the ground? Why are the leaves green? And where do we go to take and support? It's summer. <laughs> amazing. And then, first of all, it's one of the most amazing moments in parenting that I've ever heard. Yeah. He, he was two and nearly three, but not quite three. And, and for a president, you know, for all of us to think about when we're engaged in very difficult and what we consider important work. And, you know, I, I confess, I don't know how many times I've, I've told my children to wait until I'm finished with my work. And he just stopped cold and really engaged with his young right. son, John Jr. It's amazing. I mean, all presidents compartmentalize. They have to carry a lot of information in their head. But yeah, he just shifts gears effortlessly and becomes a dad. And it's a, a beautiful moment. And it's also a haunting moment because we know that uh, in, in three weeks, he will no longer be around to be a dad. So um, it's one of the, the most poignant moments in the entire book. You're listening to CNN Profiles. Our guest is Ted Widmer, author of Listening In, The Secret White House Recordings of John F. Kennedy. We're just listening to some amazing moments that were taped before and during the Kennedy presidency. We want to go now to the Cuban Missile Crisis because to listen to his interactions with his advisors at a time when we were so close to nuclear war is, is incredible. And to hear the composure, give us a little background of what's going on here at the time. Well, Cuba had been a major foreign policy headache from the beginning of the Kennedy presidency onward. And in April 1961, they had blundered badly with a uh, ill-conceived and ill-executed invasion of Cuba that uh, earned the condemnation of the world, and, and rightly so. And yet the problem of Cuba had not gone away. And in the summer and early fall of 1962, there were signs that the Russians were sending more and more military material and, and men into Cuba, which would change the balance of power in the world. And the U.S. government and President Kennedy himself were were 
trying to verify exactly what was happening and kept getting promises from the Soviet leadership that nothing had changed at all. And on October 16, 1962, CIA photographs began to reveal that the Soviets had been lying through their teeth and that a major, major military buildup, including nuclear weapons and missiles to launch them, were uh, very close to being finished and that the entire strategic balance between Russia and the United States had changed. And so 12 days of terrifying diplomacy ensued with the good result that we did not go to war, but it was touch and go there on an hourly basis for 12 days. And before we go to our taped segment, there there's some material that uh, is in the transcripts of your book, uh, which we don't have on tape, but it's, it's the president with his joint chiefs of staff. And uh, it's really incredible to, uh, everybody should buy this book and read the transcripts of his methodical questioning of the Joint Chiefs, and if you could just tell us how that went in the early stages of this Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, it was pretty tough going, and the relationship was not great dating back to the Bay of Pigs when he felt his military advisors had failed him. They had given him inaccurate information, which had led to the decision to invade. So he was troubled by the kinds of information he was getting from his his Pentagon advisors, and it was happening all over again in October 1962 with the stakes much, much higher. And they were uh, to a man in favor of invasion. And invasion certainly would have led to nuclear retaliation. We now know what we didn't know then, which was the um, Russians had fortified Cuba with far more men, with more than 40,000 men, and far more nuclear weapons than we we thought they had. So Kennedy's always probing for weaknesses in their argument and asking how they will how he expects the Russians to retaliate. And the the generals usually say they don't think they will retaliate, which of course uh, is nonsense. And also he's always trying to pull back and think about the global picture and how what happens in Cuba affects what happens in Berlin particularly. And he's a global strategist. He's he's trying to maintain a status quo that is acceptable to both the status to the Soviet Union and the United States, and it's very, very difficult in the early days of the crisis. Which makes me think that that exercise of writing that book while uh, why Britain slept that we heard in the very beginning exactly. of the show, really, really it, he, exactly. he was training. He was training for this, whether he realized it or not. A- absolutely right. Um, he was fortunate to have seen a lot of politics up, up close as a young man, e- even though he was always a young man in a sense, in that he didn't live out of his 40s, he had seen a lot of the uh, very difficult conversations of the 1930s in, in Britain that led to uh, a, a not very happy beginning of World War II for Britain. And then uh, many subsequent conversations about foreign policy. He was at the conference in San Francisco that launched the UN. and. Uh, without entirely being comfortable in the slower forms of diplomacy, he did recognize the value of of slowing down a, a highly charged converse, conversation about military conflict and making sure the best possible result uh, ensued. And in the Cuban Missile Crisis, he really did that. And so now we're going to hear a little bit of a conversation between him and uh, one of his CIA analysts. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, let's listen to it. Uh-huh. Medium-range ballistic missile launch site and two new military encampments on the southern edge of the Sierra de Rosario in west central Cuba. Who would that be? Uh, west central Sierra. 
Clearly, some of the sound is not completely intelligible so, uh, on some of these tapes. So if you can just guide us on what the Q&A is uh, that we're listening to there. But uh, I mean, what strikes me is that, you know, it's a very calm situation there on very dire matters. But, but tell us what's going on in that room. Well, he's seeing for the first time the photographs that then became familiar to all of us a week later, uh, the overhead photographs showing with great detail these buildings that... 99 out of 100 of us wouldn't identify as threatening at all, but which the CIA analysts there are saying these are the beginnings of a missile site in Cuba, well well underway and soon to be completed. And he's just asking ordinary questions. How do you know? What is the length of the missile? Um, what is What is this building over here? But the horror of the situation is quickly dawning on him, which is that the entire... Uh, nuclear relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States has, has changed profoundly because they now have a missile base in Cuba 90 miles from Florida, and their intermediate missiles could easily uh, strike New York City, Washington, uh, and m many other American cities. And in a first exchange of nuclear missiles, 80 million Americans would have died, and it, the, the world as we know it would have changed forever. So he's, he's taking it in quickly. He was obviously a quick study and beginning to plan his political response. And, and at the same time, the generals, and again, we don't have the tape of this, but in your book there are the transcripts, uh, just to give you, you know, one little exchange, and there's a little bit of humor in this to some degree, a General Curtis LeMay uh, who says, I think that a blockade and political talk would be considered by a lot of our friends and neutrals as being a pretty weak response to this, and I'm sure a lot of our own citizens would feel that way too. And then uh, General LeMay goes on to say, in other words, you're in a pretty bad fix, Mr. President. And then the president responds, you're in there with me. That's a great exchange. And um, LeMay also accuses him with a fair amount of audacity that this, this is a situation of appeasement. And appeasement, of course, meant the appeasement of Hitler just before World War II actually started by uh, Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister of England and a good friend of Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy, was the uh, American ambassador at the time. And that's, those are fighting words. To, to accuse a president of appeasement, it's not a very nice thing to say. And, and, and the very same president who, as we said, wrote that book at the age of 21 exactly. or 22 about it, criticizing England's or British, Britain's appeasement. It, exactly. But LeMay was technically correct that many Americans would have considered that a weak response, and did. It, it was not invading Cuba immediately. It was not bombing the missile sites. It was playing for time. But as it turned out, and as we now know with hindsight, that, that was the right thing to do because a lot of information was coming in. Both President Kennedy and Chairman Khrushchev in Moscow were under extraordinary pressure with divided governments, some for a harder response, some for softer, and time helped a lot in the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the way he played for time was absolutely essential and allowed uh, the 
you know, the right result, peace to ultimately happen. And they say the presidency is such a lonely job. So you you do have a segment uh, on this CD from these tapes uh, when the president leaves the room after he has that exchange with the with LeMay and all the generals are in that room. He leaves the room. The tape recorder is still rolling and the generals start going after President Kennedy. Let's listen. President Kennedy pursued the policy that he felt was right and just quickly described for us that policy and how it turned out. Well, he insisted that the, rem- the missiles be removed and the Soviet troops leave. Um, that was a, a first condition that he never wavered from. A lot of diplomacy behind closed doors also accompanied that uh, demand, and it, it included what later t- was understood was a swap that the American missiles in Turkey that were very were as close to the Soviet Union as the uh, missiles in Cuba were to the United States would also be dismantled. Uh, President Kennedy did not want that as part of the quid pro quo of the negotiations at that moment. He wanted to take care of it later, which he did. Um, but th- the result was that, and, and also the U.S. pledged never to invade Cuba, which was an important point to uh, the Soviet Union. And that allowed each leader, Khrushchev and Kennedy, to uh, retreat from the edge of the precipice they were both standing on. You're listening to CNN Profiles, and we're getting to know uh, President John F. Kennedy a lot better through the secret White House recordings that he made and that our guest today, Ted Widmer, has gone through and selected and introduced in his new book called Listening In. Uh, you know, It's amazing to think that with all these weighty world issues, uh, that there are lighter moments. And, uh, you know, President Kennedy was, and all presidents are clearly very competitive people. And I love this selection about the U.S. hockey team. We're going to play it, and uh, you can comment on it. Yes. How are you? How are you? Dave, I noticed in the paper this morning where the Swedish team beat the American hockey team 17 to 2. Yeah, I saw that. Christ, who are we sending over there? Girls? Uh, they, they haven't won a game. I know it. I mean, who got them up? I don't know. I can check into it. God, we got some pretty good hockey players, haven't we? Yeah, well, I think well, yeah. Well, I suppose they're all playing in their college teams, are they, or something? I'd like to find out whether it was done under what, uh, who sort of sponsors it and uh, what kind of players they've got. Because uh, I think it's a disgrace to have a team that's 17-2. to two. That's yeah. about as bad as I've ever heard, isn't it? And they've been beaten by everybody by yeah. scores, uh, almost equal to that. Yeah, so it's obviously uh, we shouldn't send a team unless we can send a good one. Will you find out about it? Let me I'll know. I'll find out about it. I'll find out about it. He almost seemed more exercised about that than the Cuban missiles. Yeah. Well, he was a sports fan. And every area of competition between the United States and uh, another country, and especially with a Soviet bloc country, which Sweden was not, uh, but that they were all Cold War theaters. And so he was exercised that day. And um, it's not very PC that he compared the team to girls, but girls hockey has come a long way since then. So um, 
maybe it's more acceptable than, than we first think. Um, but it, it's a funny moment. It shows him reading the paper very closely and thinking about the reputation of the United States abroad and uh, caring deeply about that global competition. Uh, in terms of caring deeply about the, the world at large, uh, so many people who came of age during the, pres uh, the presidency of JFK uh, talk about the Peace Corps. And there's a moment, again, in the tapes in your book uh, that's quite remarkable. President Kennedy's brother-in-law, Sergeant Shriver, uh, calls the president because he's concerned about some of the people who have applied to join the Peace Corps. And we're going to hear that, and you can give us a little more context after we hear it. Oh, Jack. Yeah, Todd. Hi, how are you? Good, fine, fine. I'm sorry to bother you, Not but I'm getting uh, rather suspicious over here that uh, despite your instructions that uh, some of our friends over in the Central Intelligence Agency might think that they're smarter than anybody else and that they're trying to stick fellas into the Peace Corps. Yeah. Yeah. And John McCone has told me on two or three occasions, and Dulles, of course, did, that they never would do that. Right, right. They sent out messages and the rest of it. Right. But uh, we've got a group in training now that looks suspicious. And I'd like... Uh, whatever you recommend, but I sure in hell want those. Oh, you call Dick Helms? Dick Helms? Yeah, he's the operation officer over there under. Just say to him, you talk to me, and I don't want anybody in there. Okay. And if they are there, let's get them out now before we have it. And if there's any problem about it, then Dick Helms ought to call the president about it. But this okay. is very, we're very, very anxious that there be no, uh, we don't want to discredit this whole idea. Okay, fine. And uh, they, in Christ, they're not going to find out that much intelligence. Now, the other thing is, I noticed with these people coming back, can we do anything about seeing if we can get some of them to go in the Foreign Service? Yes, the Foreign Service has already changed their uh, examination schedules and the kind of uh, exams they give and the uh, places that they're going to be given uh, and done everything that they think they can this year to facilitate Peace Corps guys getting into the Foreign Service. And yeah. USIA has done the same thing, and aid is trying to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll have to find out by one trial run to see whether it's successful. Okay, well, I just want to be sure. Let me know if there's anything we can do, because these are the guys I'd like to get in the foreign service. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. Ted, Ted Widmer, what, what do we learn about the Kennedy presidency from that conversation? Well, we learn how difficult it is to govern the United States government, that uh, this idealistic program, the Peace Corps, sent young men and women uh, to, to developing nations, was being infiltrated at the beginning by CIA operatives who saw it as an interesting chance to learn about foreign countries, which is part of their job. But it was bureaucratic um, creep, creeping. It was one bureaucracy uh, infiltrating another in a way that would definitely undermine the, the mission and, and the performance of, of the Peace Corps. And so Kennedy's cutting it off at the pass and saying he, he's going to or he's asking Sarge Shriver to get in touch with Dick Helms, who, who was high up at the CIA, obviously, and could, could put it to an end. But it, that happened a lot, that the U.S. government was um, feeling its power throughout the 1950s and 60s, and often a large agency, sometimes the CIA, sometimes another part of the U.S. government, would cross a boundary into the duties of another part of the, the government, and not always with the knowledge of the president. And so that's an example, and it just shows how hard it is to be president of the United States. It's hard enough to run and win, and then actually being president is extraordinarily difficult. And one purpose of this book, I felt, was to show people that, that he was a glamorous president and a charismatic politician, but he had a very hard job, and he showed up day after day and, and performed that job. One thing I haven't learned is, is, is much about you and, and why you were chosen for this task, but, but I, I did look at your bio, and uh, starting with your 
uh, experience at Harvard on, on the Harvard Lampoon, was it? I was on the Harvard Lampoon. Which is it's true. Which is their comedy magazine. And so right. uh, I, I guess I have to ask, you know, through, I mean, there's so much tragedy in the Kennedy presidency, but as, as we all know, tragedy and comedy are joined at the hip. And, uh, you know, do you see humor in the story? And do you see humor in, in our current times that maybe we all need to see a little more of? And maybe maybe we don't recognize. Well, I, I hope we never get to a time in our politics when we don't see humor. It's, it's essential grease to keep the system oiled and moving forward. We just have to laugh at ourselves. It's key to life. Um, and John F. Kennedy certainly loved humor. There are countless stories of him laughing and enjoying life and laughing at his own expense. And he often joked about the memoir that he was going to write, which I believe these tapes were were prepared for. I think he was taping to, to have the stuff of history at his fingertips when he was no longer president. And he was going to blame all, he, was, he often would identify an underling performing badly on a given day and say he was going to out him in, in his memoirs. Um, there's laughter in the tapes. He got along easily with his aides. He was very close to them. He liked a young, ambitious, hard-charging men not unlike himself, and that, that was the ambiance of the new frontier, and it generally worked very well. There are um, funny moments inadvertently. There's a couple times when he loses his temper at an underling. We heard the hockey tape um, another time. Uh, the military bought a hospital bed and installed it in a room near his vacation house on Cape Cod, and President Kennedy just erupted in anger when a photograph of it appeared in the press. General? Yes, sir. That Air Force has caused itself more grief with that silly bastard. Did you see the post this morning? Yes, sir. I'm looking See that it. fellow's picture by the bed? Yes, sir. Are they, and you see that furniture they bought from Jordan Marsh? What the hell did they let the reporters in there for? Are they crazy up there? Now you know what's going to do. Any congressman's going to get up and say, Christ, if they can throw $5,000 away on this, let's cut them another billion dollars. You just sank the Air Force budget. You're crazy up there. Are they crazy? That silly bastard with his picture next to the bed? Sir, I'm uh, appalled, but... Uh... Well, I'm appalled, too. Uh, now, the I thing is, I, the uh, thing of the matter is, I'm going to get that furniture. I've just told Sylvester, you can talk to him. I want to find out if we pay for that furniture, because I want it to go back to George Marshall's. All right, sir. Then I want that fellow's incompetent who had his picture taken next to Mrs. Kennedy's bed, if that's what it is. I mean, he's a silly bastard. I wouldn't have him running a cat house. And it's funny now because who would even blink an eye at a $5,000 expenditure? But at the time, he was outraged, especially at the publicity around it. So I think we should combine comedy with um, politics to the extent we can. And um, we're in the high election season now. And I think it's, it's a way to help, help us get through the terrible seriousness of, of the issues that we are also thinking about. And, uh, and in, in terms of your own life plan, did, did you ever have a life plan or you just seemed to fall, no. fall into different, different projects that interested you? I always loved history. I, I can't remember a day I didn't love history. And um, I was reading about President Kennedy as a young, as a child, really. I, I, you know, probably in the late 60s, early 70s, he was just... Um, he was our president, if you're from New England, which I, I am, and I remember seeing his photograph in people's houses, usually near um, 
Carl Yastrzemski's or Ted Williams is just, you know, the part of our iconography in New England. And I've always been interested, but I had not worked on him until this project. And I believe history should be available to everyone, not just specialists. I happened to go to grad school and, and get the degrees to go become a professor, but I think we all care about it. We all have lived it in different ways. Many of us have seen a president in a, from a crowd, and I think it's a part of being a good citizen to care about your history. So I, I probably will write about a lot of other presidents in the years to come. So final question, you had uh, uh, your two icons, Carl Yastrzemski of the Boston Red Sox and uh, President Kennedy. Um, any, anything similar between baseball and politics uh, that we should know about before we go? Well, they're games that involve highly trained professionals, and then there's also a lot of chance involved. The wind can shift on a given day, and a person can perform a little below the expected level or, or above the expected level. We've seen that with the seesaw of the debates over the past few weeks, and that makes life more interesting. It's nice not to know, know the final result, so uh, we don't. And I certainly have, a, you know, I know the way I'm going to vote, but um, I think it's great that we don't have foregone conclusions in our politics. It's, it makes life exciting, and that's, uh, that keeps people interested, and we want people to be interested, to be good citizens. Ted Widmer, author of Listening In, The Secret White House Recordings of John F. Kennedy. Thank you so much for joining us on CNN Profiles. Thanks, Michael. Remember, you can listen to CNN Profiles on cnn.com soundwaves or on the apps SoundCloud or Stitcher. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. Just one request. If you like us, share us. That's CNN Profiles.